Welcome to the first quarter conference call for GWK Investment Management. This call represents the views and opinions of GWK Investment Management and does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be considered predictive of any future market performance. My name is Dan Fasciano. I'm the Director of Private Wealth here at GWK. Joining me on today's call is Harold Kotler, GWK's Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, as well as Bill Sterling, our firm's global strategist. Harold, I'm going to begin with you. It's been an interesting start to the year. Equity markets are higher globally, led by EFER and US. Interest rates are lower. Now that we're almost a third of the way into 2023, what themes are you focused on and what should clients be thinking about? Well, we're in a transitional period from high inflation to lower, lower inflation, from an economy that was struggling with all the effects of COVID to one that now is getting normalized. And uh, after a correction of last year and interest rates spiking, we are finding our way and finding our footing. So in my letters I have, and I still say, it's a transitional year and maybe next year as well, <clears throat> where we have ups and downs, um, but, uh, no major concerns, and in the direction of all these assets, they're becoming more attractive all the time. So I'm very positive about the markets, um, not assuming any incredible returns, but also setting a base for future returns. Bill, the Fed's hiked at the last nine consecutive meetings. They've raised the Fed funds rate from less than a quarter of a percent Q1 of last year to the current four and three quarters to 5%. The next FOMC meeting is May 3rd. That's just a week or so away here. What's the market been pricing in for that meeting for the, and for the rest of 2023? More importantly, what's your view? Well, the upcoming Fed meeting looks like it will see one more rate hike hopefully the final rate hike in this cycle to the, take the upper end of the Fed funds target range to five and a quarter. That's what the market's pricing in, and that's what I think is most likely. Um, the market's also pricing in two to three rate cuts by the end of the year, which could take the upper end of the range down to about four and a half percent. That seems about right to me. If I look back at the history, um, it's typically taken the Fed about four months on average from their last rate hike to the beginning of a rate cutting cycle. And there are enough signs that the economy is slowing pretty significantly here that um, this does look like it's going to be the last rate hike of the cycle and that we can be on a glide path towards two and a half percent type inflation rates by uh, the first half of 2024. Hmm. So I, I think the market's got this about right. That's uh, it's helpful. And, and, and we're kind of far enough in here to start actually talking about 2024, aren't we? I guess while we're on the topic around debt in general, you know, what are your thoughts about the current debt ceiling situation? And, and I guess alongside that, what should clients be looking at or for? Well, clearly the market's concerned that as we saw in 2011 or 2013, and then again in 2015, uh, this could go to the wire before uh, the politicians come up with some sort of um, solution to raise the debt ceiling. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy uh, on the GOP side has been proposing a 1.5 trillion increase in the debt ceiling in exchange for tighter spending controls. 
that may be a non-starter so far on the Democratic side of things. So, you know, we saw in 2011, they had only hours to go before they were on the brink of a technical debt default. And that was associated with a fair amount of market volatility. That could happen this time around. Nobody knows. Eventually, though, they usually solve these things. And uh, for long-term investors, um, it hasn't you know, paid to pay a whole lot of attention to it. But this one looks tricky for sure. Harold, you know, we're talking here about kind of the Fed. We're talking about debt ceiling and, and, and potentially technical default. I guess that begs the question, you know, do you think the U.S. is going to go into a recession? And, and alongside that, how much should it matter for investors? I like the second part of the question better than the first. <laughs> um, look, I can't argue that it might be two quarters in a row or down GDP, which is a definition of a recession. I really don't care about that so much as what it looks like and what does it mean. So, yeah, the probability we may have that technical recession, but that's not where the focus should be. The focus should be what does it mean? And I suggest that it means there is a bottoming um, position for the economy lower inflation, and if the market does decline a bit, it's just a further buying opportunity. I just You just can't get bogged down in the short-term uh, um, economic cycles when we can look forward to a healthier economy out two, three, four, five years. And it's just all about opportunity. And I see all this providing great opportunity. Of course, there's disruption. Of course, there's, uh, there will be some failures. Of course, there's frustrations we see in the banking industry. Um, but for a diversified investor, it's only trying to be sure that you have your commitments and looking in the further view of a decent period out two, three years. Mm. Bill, 70% or so of GDP is consumption. And, and we talked about the Fed, but with prices of goods and services higher for sure year on year, and obviously a more restrictive Fed in that last 12 months, I mean, how would you describe the health of the consumer right now? Well, the first quarter was surprisingly good, Dan, and it looks like consumer spending will be in the 3 to 4% range in the first quarter. But most of that was front-loaded in January. And yeah. when you look at the monthly data, mm -hmm. there's no doubt there's been a slowdown and consumers have been zipping up their wallets. The Fed wants to see that consumer spending rate, and economists believe it's going to slow to about 1.5%, maybe even 1%, which you know sometimes called stall speed uh, you know, for the overall economy. But uh, you know, we look at consumer confidence surveys, they've been pretty weak in general, um, you know, which is consistent with that big slowdown in the economy. But one thing I'd point out that's important to keep in mind is that consumer balance sheets are still quite healthy. Net worth is well above what the pre-pandemic trend would have would have suggested, even with you know the bear market we've had um, in particular in 2022 in, in equities and fixed income. And also households are flush with cash. Um, I estimate that there's about $4 trillion in excess liquidity mm. in the household sector, primarily in the high income, high net worth sectors. Um, but um, that's, that suggests that the recession, if it comes, could be a fairly shallow one because 
we have nothing like the degree of household leverage that we had, say, in the 2005-2006 episode when so many people got upside down in their mortgages and it had a big flushing out of economic activity because of the mortgage crisis then. If anything, we have the highest sort of um, uh, uh, equity positions in housing that we've ever seen mm -hmm. right now, along with a lot of that cash. Yeah. And you know that suggests this cycle could be a fairly shallow one. Well, Harold, when you think about U.S. interest rates and the curve, what do you make of opportunities with intermediates and longer term bonds right now? It's very funny, Dan. In the last five, six years, people were sucked in uh, to buying 10-year uh, paper at a very marginal rate versus zero, which is what got the banks in trouble. And now, with short rates being so attractive, the inclination is to keep all your money short because it's a very attractive return and not in disregard the intermediate long. In my whole career, all these years I've been teaching people third grade math, rate times time equals distance. So although the rate is attractive for one year, uh, it's one year. It's only one year. And if, in fact, inflation is coming down, and if the economy does slow up, and long rates continue to decline, as they have been, people will miss the long end of the market once again and the opportunity that the long end uh, provides. So I'm a big proponent of making sure you have your seven to 12 year maturities and don't focus all your money on the short end, however attractive it might be. For those clients who are saying, listen, I've got four and a half percent cash right now. Why would I extend that out? And maybe get a little something left. It's really the practical kind of experience of an inverted curve. You're saying don't sit on too much cash right now. Would that be a fair thing to say? Or The short end yeah. is short, mm. which means if we get into uh, a recession, mm -hmm. Uh, the Fed is going to start to reduce short rates, and um, those returns will decline. Right. So everything is always changing. So to bet on any moment in time as being consistent is a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. And that short end is incredibly volatile, as we've seen. I mean, that's what killed the banks, right? From zero to four and a half. Now, I won't go back to zero, but what if I went back to one and a half, two percent? Your four year, your one year paper would uh, will mature and your reinvestment rate will be two. Mm -hmm. and, and unless you're investing or you're thinking about dying in a year, you have to have a long term focus on internal rate of return. Mm -hmm. An internal rate of return on a short paper is very short. Therefore, you have to be willing to commit to a longer piece to, to lock in an internal rate of return. Not with all your money. You can keep some money short. Mm -hmm. But the, the, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like the Venus flytrap. It'll suck you in. You'll feel comfortable. And then bang, your rates go down 
by two, three percent. I'm going to remember that. Rates is Venus flytrap. I like it. And if I use it, I'll give you full credit here. Bill, we've just talked a little bit about opportunities here in the U.S., particularly rates. I want to steal your attention to China. When we last sat down, the three of us, China was just reopening. Now we've got a quarter under our belt. Um, you know, are there any deeper takeaways that you're getting at this stage? And, you know, what's your view on growth in that region? Well, I think the, um, you know, brutal lockdowns in China last year put their economy in a totally different business cycle position than the rest of the world. They had a very significant slowdown mm -hmm. in 2022, but all the evidence since they got rid of those COVID restrictions late last year is that the economy has come back strongly in the first quarter and first four months of the year for that matter. So all the high frequency data, whether it's on domestic travel, whether it's on road congestion, subway riding, all that has been booming in the first four months of this new year. Uh, they reported first quarter GDP up 4.5% year on year compared to 4% expected, but that was 9% at an annual rate. So, and most uh, economists are looking at a continuation so that for the full year, full calendar year, you're likely to see 55 to 6% growth in China. And then remember other major economies in Asia are also doing well. India is expected to grow close to 7% this year. Indonesia, which is a trillion dollar plus economy uh, with 250 million people or so is expected to grow uh, around 5% this year as well. So I think the Asian growth story is really quite encouraging um, right now and very distinct to the kind of concerns about slowdown slash possible recession in the US or uh, or Europe. Well, I'm gonna take your kind of Asian momentum here and, and take your, bring it, your attention to Europe you know, heading into the winter, for sure, we were talking about the threat of kind of higher energy prices on Europe. That seemed to have not really manifest in, in, in EFA in particular has been a great performer year to date. When you cast your attention on Europe as a region, uh, it, what's your thinking going into the summer months? Uh, well, I think the big thing that happened in Europe, and you, you touched on it, is that energy prices um, have come down a lot, especially the natural gas Natural gas was the equivalent of $550 a barrel oil last August. That's come down to around $75 a barrel oil, comparable to prices everyone in the world's facing. Yeah. So that that's it was an 87% drop from the peak. Mm -hmm. And as those oil price or those natural gas prices dropped, uh, people's perception of the European economy has been marked up substantially. So it looks like on a sort of fourth quarter to fourth quarter basis for this the end of this calendar year, Europe may be growing 1% where the US uh, is closer to zero according to consensus forecasts. And that's been reflected you know, in the EFA market outperforming. Um, Japan too is expected to grow more on a calendar four quarter calendar year basis over the next four quarters than the US, believe it or not. Hmm. So um, Europe and Japan are the key, key components of the, the so-called EFA non-US equity index. Um, and that's been reflected in better performance in that index than the S&P 500 this year. Mm -hmm. Harold, in your most recent economic commentary, you talked about the Silicon Valley bank failure and, and you did a really exceptional job weaving that into a larger context of what successful banks do. And, and you even reflected back upon prior crises, particularly the global credit crisis in 08, the SNL crisis in the late 80s, early 90s. Do you think the situation we're currently looking at, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, 
will be isolated to a few institutions? Do you think that's part of a broader theme? Is it something larger or flit? I mean, what do you make of it? I'm going to answer the question and then I'll go into detail. Uh, I do not think this is going to be a major problem across the whole banking industry. Many regional banks um, are there for the local people and incredibly important to survive. The banks that failed um, had large deposits of very mostly institutional investment companies, venture capital firms, and they had the vulnerability of having those people really having outsized positions. But the other factor that we have to now think about, the black swan wasn't their portfolio. That was part of it. They made mistakes in their portfolio by going too long and not matching the loans to their asset base. That was a mistake. The other mistake, unbeknownst to anybody, was the internet. I mean, we're all growing through understanding of how the internet is changing our lives in so many areas. To lose $75 billion in two days can only be done that something goes through like a wave totally unexpected any other time in the history of this company, country. So now banks have to realize they're vulnerable, not just banks, by the way. I think many businesses better be careful because one mistake that gets really um, becomes part of the genre of the time is is incredibly risky, and that's what happened. Uh, part of me is feels very bad for these banks. Uh, they were doing their their job. They should have matched the liability. They reached for so little more interest. They could have stayed much more within the scope of their loan portfolio, and they didn't. And it was just. It's not, no one really paid that much attention to it because no one could thought you could lose $75 billion in two days. So it's a new beginning. It's a new awareness. Um, I do not think it's going to affect basically the smaller banks around the country. Uh, they don't have those kinds of serious large deposits in probably not as many sophisticated investors. And the big banks are, uh, are well capitalized. So, I mean, I'm not saying there's not gonna be one or two more banks that might fail, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's not gonna be a contagion. It's not something that you have to worry about. I mean, obviously you should keep your deposits within a half a million dollars for a couple. I mean, there's no reason to go above that. But most regional banks probably and their average deposit is much, much less than that. Hmm. Just, I was writing down as you were talking, mobile transactions shortening up liability durations. 
I mean, really just kind of an exogenous event that's pretty powerful. Uh, Bill, Saudi Arabia and, and fellow OPEC plus nations earlier this month announced uh, surprise production cuts. WTI initially popped on the news. I think it went up to $83 a barrel, but it's since come back to the high 70s. We're heading towards the summer travel season. I mean, what do you make of the price of energy? And if you want, maybe a few words around inflation as well. Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic that um, energy prices are going to stay in a, in a range because, you know, those production cuts on paper were meaningful. But the problem with cartels is there's always incentives to cheat. Already there are reports that Russia is pumping out more than they should based on that agreement. And, um, you know, there are also demand jitters, you know, concerning the potential slowdown in the U.S. economy that have been keeping the price of oil down as well. I think one possible wild card is if Asia's comeback is you know, mm -hmm. better than expected, particularly Chinese travel and so on, jet fuel demand and so on, that could, you know, give some upward um, price to the, to the energy side. But at the end of the day, commodities, I think, depend on Fed policy tremendously. U.S. money supply growth is now contracting 4% year on year as of March. And, you know, what we were just talking about, the banking system, that's hardly inflationary from the point of view of what it means for commodity prices in general, but also that includes energy. So um, I'm pretty optimistic that Fed policy has put us in a place where we can begin to see overall inflation come back close to its target over the next six to 12 months. And that would be supported by energy prices moving sideways. And that means short rates will come down. Yeah, that gets back to the- You're Getting back to your point the, earlier. Short duration is short duration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's great. And as always, guys, I want to thank both of you for sharing your thoughts with all of us. For everyone listening in, we want you to have a safe and happy rest of your spring and early summer. And we'll be back next quarter. Thanks very much for listening in.